On Saturday, August 19, 1997, Savannah Greywind was doing light chores while waiting for lunch delivery. A neighbor asked the very pregnant Savannah for help with a project, and Savannah agreed. What she didn't know was that she was about to become the victim of a fetal abduction, a rare crime that is sadly on the rise. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. As promised from last week, I am telling the story of another murdered Indigenous woman, but this time it's from this side of the border. This is the story of Savannah Marie LaFontaine Greywind. This is a fairly recent case, and I'm sure many of you followed it as it unfolded. But I think what happens for me with a lot of cases that I follow, I follow them really closely at first. And then as things start slowing down with the investigation or with the legal process, I start missing updates and such that show up in my newsfeed. And this case feels like one of them, one that I knew everything about on the first half, but I didn't know that much about what happened after. So with the help of my researcher, Haley, we are going to get into those details. Savannah was born in August of 1995 in Belcourt, North Dakota, which is in the Turtle Mountain Reservation. If you go much farther north than Belcourt, you're in Canada. Her mother, Norberta, is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Savannah's early years were spent in Fargo, though. Fargo is the largest city in North Dakota with about 100,000 residents. When Savannah was 10, her family, which included two brothers and a sister, moved to Spirit Lake. Her father, Joe, is a member of the Spirit Lake tribe, which is a Dakota tribe. And what a place to grow up. It is about two and a half hours away from Fargo. It's an incredibly beautiful part of our country, but it is also an incredibly rural and remote area. Savannah attended Warwick Public Schools, which is a tiny school district that serves this rural slash remote area. To give you an idea, from 7th grade to 12th grade, there are only 60-some-odd students enrolled across all of those grades. 98% of them are considered being from a, quote, minority group. The vast majority of those are Indigenous children. So Savannah spent much of her formative years surrounded by her culture, and it really influenced her. She was incredibly family-oriented and a natural caretaker. When her niece and nephew came along, she jumped right in to help with their care. When Savannah was a sophomore in high school, she met Ashton Matheny, who was a grade behind her. The two started dating, and they stayed together throughout high school, even though her family took a little bit of time to warm up to Savannah being in a serious relationship so young. Her parents were pretty protective. In high school, she had an 8 p.m. curfew. 
they did soften over the years. They realized Ashton was a good person, Savannah had a good head on her shoulders, and things would be okay. The couple stayed together even after Savannah went to North Dakota State University for their nursing program. In 2014, she became a certified nursing assistant. In January 2016, the family moved back to Fargo. Savannah got a job at a nursing home and loved working with the residents. Like I said, she just was a natural caretaker. She had that personality you need to be able to work in a nursing home and to be successful there. About a year after they moved to Fargo, Savannah and Ashton found out that they were going to be parents, and they were thrilled. Savannah started talking about a baby several months before they got pregnant. Ashton was a little hesitant because they were still on the young side, but he warmed up to the idea and they decided to try. They'd been together for about six years at this point. They were in their early 20s. Savannah had a career. So this isn't a ridiculous idea to have a baby. At the time, though, they didn't have their own place. Savannah was staying with her parents and her two siblings in a downstairs apartment. The building they were in was three stories of apartments with a total of seven units, and they were in the downstairs, which are almost half underground. They have big windows, but they're down a few steps. So sometimes you'll hear it called a basement apartment. The baby was due on September 20th, 2017, and Ashton and Savannah found out they were having a little girl. They picked out the name Hazley Joe, with her middle name being in honor of Savannah's father. And in anticipation for Hazley's birth, the couple really started looking ahead. They had the baby shower planned for August 20th. Ashton and Savannah were getting ready to move into their own apartment on September 1st. They had already put their deposit in. This place was right across the street from Savannah's parents, which couldn't have worked out better for them. Like I said, Savannah was very family-oriented. Raising Hazley close to family was very important to her. And Ashton later said that he had plans to propose on their next anniversary. So they were looking to the future, but everything really came to a stop on August 19, 1997. It's a Saturday. It's the day before Savannah's baby shower is scheduled, and she's a month away from her due date. She and Ashton are moving in less than two weeks. This is a really busy time for her. A lot is happening. Savannah was in the apartment doing minor chores around the place when shortly before 1.30 in the afternoon, a 38-year-old neighbor named Brooke Cruz from apartment 5 on the top floor came down to the apartment and asked Savannah if she could come upstairs to help her with a sewing project. She even offered to give Savannah $20 for her help. Savannah had just ordered a pizza for lunch, so she texted her mom to tell her that she was going to the apartment to help with a project. She also texted Ashton. Ashton was actually out of town at this time. He was house-sitting in Grand Forks, which is about an hour away. So they were just texting back and forth throughout the day 
just that regular chit-chat you sometimes do. Savannah was supposed to give her brother a ride to work that afternoon, and he had to be to work around 3. So when Savannah wasn't home around 2.30, her mother Norberta sent her a text. She didn't get a response. Norberta saw William Hayne, who was Brooke Crew's live-in partner, arrive at the apartment building around the same time she sent that text. So we're putting that at about 2.30. Norberta sent her son up to Brooke's apartment to see if Savannah was still there, but no one answered the door when he knocked. So she just drove him to work, dropped him off, went home. Savannah was still not there. So Norberta went up to apartment five herself. Brooke answered the door and said that Savannah had already left. Norberta, though, was worried. She was not quite sure what was happening here. Savannah had ordered lunch and then left without eating, and apparently on foot, too, because the family's car was still there. So was everything Savannah owned, like her wallet, so it wasn't like she decided to walk to the store to get something. Savannah was the type to let her mom know whatever was happening, any change in plans. I mean, she even texted her just to let her know she was going up to a different apartment for a little bit. So leaving and not telling Norberta anything just didn't make sense. But Norberta waited for about an hour after this, and then she reported Savannah missing at 4.30 in the afternoon. So this was about three hours after Savannah went up to apartment five. One of the first things police did was go to apartment five, go talk to Brooke and William, since that was the last place Savannah was known to be. They went up there about 30 minutes after getting the missing persons report, so they were pretty on it. Brooke and William consented for police to search their apartment, but the police saw nothing. William initially told police that he saw Savannah when he got home from work around 2.30 that afternoon, which confirms Norberta's sighting, but said Savannah left the apartment shortly after that. He didn't see her leave, but she was there one minute and not the next, so he assumed she left. Overall, this does fit with what the family would have expected because she had to bring her brother to work for three. They expected that she would have left Brooke's apartment by 2.30 or so. In canvassing the apartment complex, a resident on the second floor who lived below Brooke and William told police that they heard a banging noise from the apartment above them around 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon. They heard this noise for about 15 to 20 minutes. There was banging and then silence, and then the shower turned on. This sounds a little alarming to me, maybe to you, but the neighbor said they were used to this. They were used to stomping and slamming and all sorts of noises coming from Brooke and William's apartment due to their explosive fighting. So it didn't really hit the neighbor as alarming. 
A massive search of the area by family, volunteers, and police was going on. They brought in tracking dogs who were trained to sniff for placentas, which was a concern here. Let's say Savannah did go out for a walk and went into sudden and precipitous labor, or she had a medical emergency. And just kind of a side note here, placentas are actually used to train cadaver dogs. Dogs need to be trained with actual human blood and flesh. And honestly, placentas are a pretty good option. They're not needed after the pregnancy is over. It's not like humans have a lot of other spare organs to donate to tracking dogs. Placentas are a good option. There's one with every birth, more if you have twins with their own placentas. So there's lots of them to use. But in this case, the dogs were actually looking for the scent of a placenta, but they did not find anything. There was a large number of police assigned to this case, including 35 detectives. So people were being questioned while the searches were happening over here. Tips were being taken over there. They really covered a lot of ground and air and water, too, using aircraft and watercraft for searching. Around 10 p.m. the same day, so this is the same day Savannah went missing, investigators went back to apartment five and asked if they could search again. This time, Brooke hesitated. She had to be convinced a little. The police officer entered, looked around, again didn't find anything. The next day, search number three, they went back to the apartment and asked again if they could search. Brooke let them in, and again, they didn't find anything. It's important to note that these were consent searches and not search warrant searches. So they were just doing more of a in-plain-sight look around. They weren't going through drawers. They weren't looking behind doors. And this frustrated the Grey Winds on the first two searches because the family was actually familiar with that apartment. They had other family members who lived there at one point. The bathroom closet had a fake wall in it, basically like an access panel. And they asked police to search in there. And look, because they thought really rather grimly that a body could be hidden there. So on the third search, the police did ask if they could look in the bathroom closet. Brooke consented and they found nothing. The Grey Winds felt the initial focus was too heavily skewed on Savannah's boyfriend. I mean, you can see that he was the boyfriend. That's usually who does it. If a woman experiences violence during a pregnancy, it's almost always her intimate partner. But he was in Grand Forks at the time, and that was pretty easily verified. The family knew Ashton had nothing to do with it, and they suspected Brooke and William from the start. Norberta saw William arrive home right before she sent her son to knock on the door, so why didn't William answer the door? Norberta remembered a week before when Brooke tried to get Savannah to go up to her apartment and Savannah, for whatever reason, couldn't go. Why was Brooke so interested 
in having Savannah help her. And if Savannah left the apartment to go somewhere else, why didn't she text her mom? All of her texting with her mom and with Ashton stopped when she entered apartment five. William, who was acting neighborly, I guess, went up to Joe sometime this first night, maybe the next day. He took Joe by the hand, shook his hand, and said he was sorry for what happened to Savannah. And Joe was like, what? No one knew anything happened to Savannah. She was still missing. For all William should know, Savannah was off with a friend. She was taking a break because she was overwhelmed. So Joe looked William in the eye and asked him what did happen to Savannah. William backed down, replied he didn't know. So Joe asked Brooke, could he go in the apartment and look for Savannah himself? But Brooke said she wasn't comfortable with him going into her home. The big break in this case came on Thursday, August 24th. So we're talking Saturday to Thursday. Savannah had been missing for five days at this point. Investigators found Walmart security footage of William buying newborn diapers. So the North Dakota Bureau of Investigation got a search warrant and they entered the apartment while William was at work. The couple was obviously not given any warning that the search warrant was being executed, and police found a baby girl lying in the bed with Brooke. The baby was immediately taken into custody and transported to the hospital to be checked out. Though she appeared to be preterm and weighed only four pounds, she was healthy and estimated to be about a week old. The only thing that was noted as odd was a rash behind her ear. Brooke was arrested at the scene and officers picked William up at work. The baby was not immediately identified as Hazley. They needed a DNA test for that, but they're working on the assumption this is Hazley Joe. With the baby found alive and well and Savannah still missing, investigators knew they were looking at the rare but always heartbreaking crime of fetal kidnapping. Fetal kidnapping is on the rise. The first ever reported case of a fetal abduction in the U.S. took place in Philadelphia in November 1974. Margaret Sweeney was a 26-year-old pregnant woman with 36-year-old Winifred Ransom. Margaret was visiting Winifred when she decided to go lie down. Margaret was eight months pregnant with baby number four, and she had a shaky history with her other children. Two of them lived with their father, and a third was found abandoned at the age of 18 months old in an old car. Winifred, on the other hand, struggled with infertility and very much wanted a child. While Margaret was lying down, 
Winifred hit her in the head and began to perform a C-section. When Margaret came to, Winifred hit her with a hatchet 20 times and then shot her three times. It's not clear how in advance this kidnapping was planned, if it was planned in advance at all. When Winifred's common-law husband came home, she claimed the baby was their baby and that she killed Margaret because Margaret was trying to take the baby away. He called the police, who came and arrested Winifred, finding Margaret's body hidden under the kitchen shed behind the house. The baby, though, was found alive and well with Winifred. A psychologist testified for her that she had a psychotic break. She had some type of delusion at the time of the murder, and she was not fully responsible for her actions. The judge agreed, and Winifred was sentenced to an indeterminate term at a psychiatric facility, where she got intense treatment for nearly two years before she was released. From 1983 to December 2015, there have been 18 fetal abduction cases, as reported by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. There were 302 total infant abductions in this time, which makes fetal abductions just 6% of all infant abductions. But here's something that's interesting. Four of those abductions occurred in the 20 years from 1983 to 2003. 14 of them occurred over the next 12 years. This is a huge jump. And I think this rise is rooted in the internet. Before access to the internet, the average person wouldn't have at their fingertips the information needed to abduct a fetus in a way that wouldn't also kill the baby. But with the internet, you can watch C-section videos on your computer. One of these post-internet fetal abductions took place in Missouri, in a town that will sound familiar to most of you. Bobby Joe Stinnett lived in Skidmore, Missouri, home of the bully Ken McElroy, who was shot to death in front of a crowd in the middle of the day and nobody saw a thing. Anyway, 23-year-old Bobby Joe was eight months pregnant. She and her husband bred dogs, and that's how they met 36-year-old Lisa Montgomery. In talking online, Lisa took on a fake identity and told Bobby Joe she was also pregnant, and so the women would chat about pregnancy. Lisa was not pregnant. She had four children and had had a tubal ligation in her 20s. Though a lot of people later said she would claim to be pregnant multiple times, even after she had the sterilization procedure done. In December of 2004, Bobby Joe was waiting on someone she believed was coming to look at the puppies she had for sale. 
Later that day, Bobby Joe's mother found her dead, covered in blood, and someone had taken her baby from her. There were no signs of a break-in, so it's believed Bobby Joe opened the door to this person she thought was a dog buyer. The very next day, the healthy baby was found with Lisa in her hometown. All thanks to this digital trail, Lisa left with her communications with Bobby Joe online. Lisa had strangled Bobby Joe until she was unconscious. She used the knife to cut the baby out and then strangled Bobby Joe to death, taking the baby with her. Because Lisa crossed state lines with the baby, she was charged in federal court rather than state court. She was sentenced to death. Of the 55 women on death row in the U.S., she is the only woman on federal death row. Diane Fanning wrote a book about this case called Baby Be Mine. I've not read it, but it sounds like a really good covering of this story if anyone is interested in exploring it more. There have been two fetal abductions since 2015 was when that stat of the 18 closed out. So counting the one before it and two since, we are up to 21 cases in the U.S. that we know about, with the most recent one being this year, April 2019. 19-year-old Marlon Okoa Lopez disappeared when she was nine months pregnant. Shortly after she was last seen, a 45-year-old woman named Clarissa Figueroa called 911 saying that she just gave birth to a baby and the baby wasn't breathing. Clarissa and the baby were transported to the hospital. Unfortunately, in this case, the little boy did pass away. Marlon's body was found three weeks later, and DNA tests confirmed that the baby was hers. Clarissa, her daughter, Denise, and her boyfriend are all facing charges related to this homicide. That case is still making its way to trial. So yes, fetal abductions are rare, but with more information out there, we're seeing more of them. And we're going to see that here in Savannah's case, her killer also took advantage of information on the internet. After Brooke and William were arrested, their apartment was searched, and that search included all electronic devices. The forensic evidence, such as blood and tissue and DNA, and all the things you would expect if someone performed a C-section in the apartment, that search for forensic evidence, it turned up very little. Pretty much nothing. The bathroom was really searched for traces, and they came up empty-handed. The forensics, as in digital forensics, however, was another story. That was a jackpot. Between December 2016 and August 17th, 2017, which was two days before Savannah went missing, someone using electronic devices in Brooke and William's apartment focused searches on some very specific things. There were searches on missing children, like the Sodder children and the Beaumont children, and a search on North Dakota missing persons laws, but that's not a huge surprise. 
Brooke was known to be interested in true crime, and I'm sure all of you listening have something in your browser history from some random late night searching on cases. I have pretty much the entire Charlie project in my history. There were also pregnancy and baby-related searches. One was how to get pregnant with tubes being tied. Another was how to register a birth after a home delivery in North Dakota. There was another about Moses baskets for babies. And these seem fairly benign on the surface. They could be curiosity. Perhaps Brooke wanted to get pregnant. But then some of these searches turned a little dark. There was one about how the mother's breathing affects the baby. And then one on, and I'll quote it directly, if a pregnant mother dies, how long until the baby dies? That's not to mention searches on how long it takes to pass out from not breathing, and then a search on how to make a noose. There were also written journals in the apartment and lists. According to the police, Brooke was keeping lists of things she would need for a childbirth. Gloves, stethoscopes, scissors, washcloths, heating pads, towels, childbirth kit, all sorts of things. But then she had some things listed that you do not usually have in a home birth. And I would know because I've done this before. She had things like an IV port, saline solution, laughing gas, which, depending on the state you're in, you might be able to get those things in a home birth. There's not really anything stopping you, even if they're not typically used. But Brooke also had Pitocin listed. And that is something that is generally only used in a hospital setting. For those who don't know, Pitocin is a medication to induce labor or to speed it up if it already started but isn't progressing. It can be used after childbirth to slow bleeding because what it does is it triggers incredibly intense, like unnaturally intense, uterine contractions. But Pitocin during labor also has risks, and it requires increased monitoring. If Brooke was planning a legit home birth, she wouldn't be considering this drug. Of course, she wasn't planning a home birth because she wasn't actually pregnant. There was another note from Brooke about how she could deliver a baby in 12 hours under the right circumstances. The circumstances she listed are a little bit in line with what you might think a natural birth or a home birth would look like. A quiet, calm environment, lights lowered, vitals being checked every 15 minutes. And maybe this would seem normal if Brooke was a nurse or a doula or a midwife in training, but she was none of those things. So who was she? Who was Brooke Cruz, this woman found with Savannah's baby? Brooke was born in 1979 in Illinois. She lived with her father as a teenager and majored in psychology at Minnesota State University with the goal of eventually rewriting the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, a.k.a. the DSM. So she had some pretty lofty goals there. However, it doesn't appear that she stayed in school that long. 
she earned about 18 credit hours. So that's either one really busy semester or a semester and a half. Something really significant about Brooke is that between the ages of 14 and 27, she had seven children, none of whom she had custody of. Some were grown at this point, and others lived with their fathers. Of her grown children, I know she had limited contact with at least one of them as she grew up, but it's possible she had limited contact with multiple. Brooke had her tubes tied after her seventh child, which was more than a decade before she was arrested. Brooke worked a lot of entry-level jobs, and she would bounce between them. Then she would have a few arrests for bad checks in there, and I'm sure it won't surprise anyone to know she owed quite a bit of money in back child support. She also came from a large family herself, a divorced family, though, like I said, she lived with her father. But she had several siblings, and she kept in sporadic contact at best with most of them. At the time Savannah went missing, Brooke was not working. She spent a lot of her time writing in her journals or writing fiction stories. And her stories really seemed to mirror herself. Her protagonists were people like a young woman in a dysfunctional family. Another was about a teenager who was really unique and bright. And the antagonist in that story had some type of mental disorder. Then she had one about a young woman who was journaling about a zombie virus that was spreading. So dysfunctional family, intelligent teen, woman who journals. I mean, she really was clearly the protagonist of her stories. Brooke's relationships with men were fairly unstable. She kept detailed journals on those relationships as well as everything else she journaled about. She would write about how amazing things were for a few weeks and then things would turn negative. But even when these relationships turned bad, it's not like they all only lasted a month or two. Some of them were a couple years long relationships. She was married to Carl Cruz for about three years, and that's where she gets her last name. From what I can tell, it sounds like he was her second husband, and he was the father of her youngest two children. When they split, they had a pretty contentious battle where Carl claimed Brooke had abandoned him with the kids at various points. One of the most notable times was in 2011 when she met an Australian man online. She went down there for a month to visit him. Then she got back to the U.S. and got into an argument with Carl. He claimed that she attacked him with a knife. So in January 2012, she was arrested on these assault charges And in February 2012, she moved to Australia, even though these charges were still pending and even though her kids were all still in the U.S. She married her online Australian boyfriend, and six days after the wedding, they separated. Australia had denied her a work visa at some point after this, and she had to returned to the U.S. in October 2012. 
none of this really went in her favor in this custody battle. In 2013, Brooke met William Hain on a bus, and they moved in together in 2014, which was the same time Carl was finally given full custody of the kids, with Brooke getting every other weekend visitation. Brooke's relationship with William was volatile and at times violent. Remember how the neighbor didn't think banging from the bathroom for 15, 20 minutes was significant? Well, in 2016, William was arrested after pushing Brooke in the bathroom where she fell into the tub. She got a no-contact order against William, but it wasn't long before they were back together. The two rented that third-floor apartment in the same building where the Greywinds lived, but they had pretty limited contact. Think about how much contact you have with some of your neighbors. I mean, you say hi when you pass in the hallway or in the parking lot, but you don't really know them. Brooke did notice that Savannah was pregnant, though. So now Brooke is in custody for kidnapping a baby that no one else knew had been born yet, and investigators had hoped they were going to get some answers from Brooke, especially about where to find Savannah, but what they got were lies. According to the charging summary, Brooke told police that Savannah planned to leave her boyfriend and her family, and she wasn't sure she wanted her baby. So Brooke told Savannah how to jumpstart labor by breaking her water herself. Savannah then left the apartment and showed back up two days later. At 3.30 in the morning on August 21st, she had Hazley with her and handed the baby to Brooke voluntarily. Savannah then left. Brooke admitted that she had taken advantage of Savannah's fragile emotional state because she wanted her to turn the baby over, but that she did not hurt Savannah. Savannah left the apartment totally fine. Brooke said that she knew she could have come forward, told the family or the police that she had the baby, but she didn't. She wanted to keep the baby. So she basically was admitting this was Savannah's baby, but wouldn't tell them anything else. On the other hand, William denied the baby was Savannah's. He said he didn't know whose baby it was, and he also didn't know why the police didn't see the baby when they searched the apartment because the baby was sleeping in a little makeshift crib thing he had. He told the police that he wasn't afraid of them finding out about the baby. He was afraid of Savannah's family. He said someone slipped a note under his door saying, we know what you did, and he suspected it was the family. His story changed a bit. He told investigators that he actually thought Brooke was pregnant with their baby until he got home on August 19th. Pushed on this, he clammed up. He refused to say anything else. He wouldn't say what happened to Savannah or where she was. He just told the police that he loved Brooke and he had her back 
no matter what. It turns out they wouldn't need William and Brooke to find Savannah. The search continued. People were checking sheds, outbuildings, remote parts of their properties, even their own trash, just looking for signs of Savannah or her remains. They had landlords checking on vacant properties. There were about 100 volunteers searching on foot at this point. Savannah's parents were trying to hold on to hope. When Hazley was found and Savannah wasn't, that's when, to some degree, they knew Savannah wasn't coming home. But they still had that shred of hope until her body was found on August 27th, which was three days after Hazley had been found. Savannah's body was spotted in the Red River by kayakers. And if you listen to last week's episode on Tina Fontaine, yes, this is the same Red River where Tina was found up in Winnipeg. It comes down, crosses the border between countries, and it forms the border between North Dakota and Minnesota. Savannah's body was wrapped in plastic and duct taped. It had gotten hung up on a log near a bridge that was just 10 minutes from the apartment building, and investigators were pretty sure that's where she went into the water. Savannah was also found with a rope around her neck, which goes back to Brooke's searches about how to make a noose. There was no DNA evidence to link that rope back to Brooke and or William, but just as what happened with Tina Fontaine, the water can break down that DNA and forensic evidence fairly quickly. The day after Savannah was found, Brooke and William were formally charged. They were charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping for kidnapping Hazley Joe, conspiracy to commit murder for killing Savannah, and providing false information to law enforcement for their several statements that were untrue. Both were held on a $2 million cash bond, of which neither could make the 10% required. So in pre-trial detention is where they were going to sit. Okay, so this conspiracy to commit murder charge against William, this is where the question mark in this case has been and may always be. What did William know and when did he know it? According to another statement he gave, William arrived home from work Around 2.30, just like Norberta said, he walked in to find Brooke cleaning up the bloody bathroom. She showed him the baby and said that this was their baby. He said Savannah's body was on the floor. And he admitted to bagging up and throwing away bloody towels, his shoes that had gotten blood on them, and other evidence. And he also admitted that he chose not to call the police on Brooke, even though he knew what she had done. Initially, both pleaded not guilty on all counts, and it looked like they were headed towards a plea deal or towards trial. In the meantime, the Greywinds had to bury their daughter. On September 7, 2017, a thousand people attended Savannah's funeral, including Hazley Joe who at the time was in foster care, waiting 
on that DNA test to confirm her identity before she could be placed with Ashton. Ten horses followed the horse-drawn carriage that carried Savannah's casket. Nine of the horses were mounted with one riderless horse, signifying the loss of Savannah. Many at the funeral wore red to honor all missing and murdered Indigenous women, because I'm sure many of you know, red is the official color of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls campaign. But do you know why they chose red? It's because various tribes believe that red is the only color spirits can see. By wearing red, the missing spirits can see them. It symbolizes calling back the literal missing women and children so that their bodies can be laid to rest. Fargo citizens were asked to put in red light bulbs on their front porches or place a red dress by the door to honor these missing and murdered Indigenous women. Over $3,000 was made in the sale of red light bulbs, and that money went to the family. There were other fundraisers as well, after a bank account for Hazley Joe was started. C.S. Hagen from the High Plains Reader wrote about several of these. There was a little three-year-old in Fargo who made a lemonade stand, raised over $1,000. That is probably the most lemonade the good people of Fargo have ever bought in a single day. High school cheerleaders collected nearly $1,300. Skylar Charbonneau won first place at a powwow and gave his winnings to the family. This story, this awful tragedy, really touched people. Unfortunately, it did bring up some opportunists. There were a few unofficial GoFundMes popping up. Some, I'm sure, were well-intentioned, but it's a good reminder to always make sure you know who is getting the money you're donating, especially on something like GoFundMe. When Hazley was four months old, Ashton did start a GoFundMe after people kept asking how they could help. He's a young single dad now, so financial assistance was pretty much what he needed. I will link the GoFundMe account, which is still active, in the show notes. It was a miracle that Ashton had this opportunity to be a dad. A very healthy and content Hazley Joe was given to Ashton when the DNA test came back when she was 24 days old. It is scary to think how easily this could have gone the other way. And the Grey Winds and Ashton not having this one piece of Savannah left that they could find comfort in. So Hazley now is safe where she belongs, and William and Brooke are where they belong, but for how long, that was a matter for the courts. The Grey Wind family was pretty immediately disappointed with how this proceeded. They were still frustrated on how the police searched Brooke and William's apartment three times and did not find Hazley or Savannah because they were both there during all three searches. William didn't even buy duct tape, which is the same duct tape Savannah was wrapped in, 
until nearly one in the afternoon, the day after Savannah went missing. The family wondered if they would have searched harder or gotten a search warrant earlier if Savannah wasn't indigenous. If Savannah was not part of an already marginalized community, would they have tried harder? Would they have been able to get in that apartment before Savannah was dumped in the river? Maybe they wouldn't have had to go 24 days with Hazley in foster care. Could things have gone differently, and why didn't they? These are valid questions the family has. They were also disappointed that the trials for William and Brooke were headed to state court. They wanted federal charges. The federal government does have jurisdiction in a lot of cases involving indigenous communities, and the Greywinds wanted that to happen here. My guess is that they did not take jurisdiction because Savannah was not killed on a reservation. I don't want to give too much of a spoiler on something I'm working on in the background, but I am currently waiting on an FBI file for a murder that did occur on a reservation. The victim was white and reported missing outside the reservation, but when his body was found on the reservation, it immediately became a federal case. That did not happen here, though the Greywinds very much wanted it to. And I'm sure Brooke Cruz wouldn't have wanted that. I already mentioned how the only woman on federal death row right now is a fetal abductor who murdered the mother. Brooke could have been facing that same fate in federal court. North Dakota, however, does not have the death penalty. So I'm sure Brooke was fine keeping this case in state court. And Brooke's case was wrapped up very quickly. She decided to plead guilty on December 11th, 2017, four months after the murder and kidnapping. She did not get a plea deal. She just decided to take responsibility for what she did, knowing that she was not going to be shown mercy. And she wasn't. She got the maximum sentence on all charges. She got life without parole for the conspiracy to commit murder. She had additional time tacked on for the kidnapping and providing false information. Appeals options are limited when someone pleads guilty, but she could have appealed her sentence. I have seen absolutely nothing indicating that she ever plans to do that. Brooke is incarcerated in the Dakota Women's Correctional and Rehabilitation Center, where she has received mental health treatment, including therapy and medication. Things went a bit differently for William Hayne, though. The 33-year-old pleaded guilty to the kidnapping charge and the false information to law enforcement charge, but he pleaded not guilty to the conspiracy to murder charge. He admitted that he helped after Savannah was killed and that he knew Hazley Joe was not his child, but he denied that he was part of the murder plot. Before we get to his trial, let's talk about who he is. 
William was born in 1985. His parents split, and by the time he was 16 years old, he wasn't living with either of them. He was on his own in Fargo, and he successfully sued both of his parents for child support for himself, which actually isn't something I knew you could do, but it interests me when we see kids who are 14, 15, 16 on their own having moved out or having been kicked out. Some are living on the street. Could they also get child support for themselves? It's an interesting thought. And in this case, it was successful. Both of his parents ended up having to pay him what added together to be a pretty significant amount. Putting the two amounts together, it was the equivalent of about $1,400 a week in today's money. That's enough for a 16, 17-year-old to live off of. William went on to have two children of his own. One was born when he was 18 and the other when he was around 24. Though he believed he had a right to support from his own parents, let's just say he wasn't quite as diligent with pursuing child support when he was the one who had to pay. He was eventually on payment plans to catch up on his child support arrears. He did have issues with petty crime and drug charges, as well as bouncing from job to job. The impression I have of William, and maybe I'm off base, but he seems to think rather well of himself. He believes he is a pretty intelligent and capable person. In my view, he seems to have felt he was above the jobs that he could get with his educational level. So he was moving between entry-level and manual labor jobs two or three times a year, quitting when he would get annoyed with his boss or his supervisor, who I assume he thought he knew better than. And maybe he did, and maybe if he stayed in these jobs longer, he would have moved up as a boss, but he didn't. William did have two convictions for violent crimes, and this will come up later. One was the guilty plea on the assault on Brooke, where he had pushed her into the bathtub. The second was a 2011 incident where he showed up to the hospital with his son, who was three months old at the time. He claimed he put his son down on a changing table too roughly, and the little boy bumped his head. Shortly after that, he noticed some swelling near the baby's ear and took him to the hospital. Now, the hospital found the source of the swelling was actually a skull fracture, and William was arrested for abusing the baby. The police did not believe this was just an accident of laying the baby on the changing table too hard like William was claiming. The next year, William entered an Alford plea, which means he was maintaining his innocence while accepting that he would likely be found guilty at trial. In the end, it's still a guilty plea, and he was given a one-year sentence 
with 235 days suspended, followed by two years of probation. So he had to spend around four months in jail on these charges. But the charges related to the murder of Savannah and the kidnapping of Hazley were by far the heaviest charges he had ever dealt with. After he pleaded guilty on the lesser charges, he went to trial on the conspiracy to murder charge. This trial began on September 18th, 2018. This was about 13 months after the murder. The prosecution went full on with their theory of the crime. They put William in the driver's seat, saying he pushed Brooke into believing that she had to have a baby. She had to have a baby with him, and she had to get that baby by any means possible. They said there was no way Brooke could have killed Savannah on her own. They believed William was the one who strangled Savannah as Brooke cut the baby out. The defense was that William didn't know anything until after Savannah was dead. He helped cover it up because he loved Brooke, and he pleaded guilty on those charges. But since he didn't know about the murder plot ahead of time, he clearly couldn't have conspired on it. Valley News Live covered the trial day by day, and there were several witnesses called. Two of these witnesses were Brooke and William themselves, each giving their version of what happened. Brooke testified for the prosecution against William. She said she was attempting to own up to what she did by helping Savannah's family get justice. She had already been sentenced at this point, and she had little or nothing to gain by testifying. But before Brooke took the stand, Savannah's parents testified. Her mother was so overcome with emotion, it's hard to watch. This was just about a year since Savannah's funeral, so this was still a very fresh grief. There was something Savannah's father said from the stand, though, that really hit me. He said that in their traditional birthing customs, the mother or grandmother is supposed to be the first person to touch the baby. So not only did Savannah not touch her baby, the person who took that moment from her and from her family and from Hazley was the same person who murdered Savannah. This was just an added pain for the family to have what is a culturally significant moment for them so deeply tarnished. When Brooke took the stand, the state started laying the foundation of the dynamic between Brooke and William, including William's abuse and his controlling behavior. Brooke said that she and William broke up after the incident where he pushed her into the bathtub. They kept seeing each other in spite of the no-contact order until he was caught violating it in November 2016 and was arrested. Things were off again at this point, but a month later, Brooke wanted him back. 
she was financially and emotionally dependent on him. So in December 2016, she sent him an email claiming she was pregnant. She attached a picture of a sonogram and a positive pregnancy test, both images we have to assume she took from the internet. And it worked. The two reconciled. This play acting of being pregnant over the next several months, according to Brooke, made her convinced she was actually pregnant. She said she became obsessed with having a baby. There is some evidence to back up this delusion. Brooke was a meticulous journal keeper. She was keeping a pregnancy journal over the next several months, writing down cravings, writing down any swelling she noticed, writing down pretty much anything you write in a pregnancy journal. William even told people at work that his girlfriend was pregnant. Then on August 16th, 2017, which is when Brooke should be approaching her due date, Brooke and William got into an argument During this argument, Brooke told William he needed to be ready in case anything went wrong with the baby's birth. And according to Brooke, he laughed at her. He told her he knew she wasn't actually pregnant. He was shocked that she had bought into her own lie. And this is when Brooke's delusion of being pregnant was shattered and something in her head snapped. But then William told Brooke that he had told people she was pregnant and people were expecting them to have a baby. And this gave Brooke the idea that William was telling her that she had to get a baby. She had to get a baby any way she could get a baby. At some point after this, he also made a comment about seeing Savannah looking really pregnant. She took this to mean that that was how she was supposed to get a baby. She did say she never explicitly told William that she planned to kill Savannah and kidnap her baby, and William never explicitly told her to do that, but that's how she interpreted these conversations. Brooke's testimony then got to the events of August 19th. She testified that after Savannah came up to the apartment, she accused Savannah of things like stealing her mail and throwing her cat, things Savannah didn't do, wouldn't have ever done. But Brooke was trying to start a fight. She said the argument escalated into a physical fight, and Savannah pulled Brooke's hair. Brooke pushed Savannah and Savannah fell, hitting her head on the bathroom sink, and this knocked her unconscious. The medical examiner saw no signs of a head injury on Savannah's body. You would think a head injury serious enough to knock her out cold would leave behind some trace. I suppose it could have been obscured after Savannah's body had been in the water for a few days, But it's also possible Brooke was lying. For some reason, she didn't want to admit how she actually overpowered Savannah. But anyway, however she overpowered Savannah, 
Savannah was unconscious, and when she was, Brooke began cutting the baby out. Savannah came in and out of consciousness during this time. After the baby was out, she wrapped her in a towel and put her in the bathtub. Then when William came home, he found them all in the bathroom. The baby, Savannah, and Brooke. Now, the bathroom wasn't big, and so Savannah's legs were blocking the door from opening all the way. But when William peeked his head in, he saw the baby and he saw Savannah. According to Brooke, he asked if Savannah was dead. Brooke said she didn't know, and that's when William got a rope. He came into the bathroom, put it around Savannah's neck, and pulled it tight. According to Brooke, he said, if she wasn't dead before, she is now. So let's interject with the medical examiner one more time. He said he couldn't tell if Savannah was strangled to death or if she bled out. The cause of death was listed as homicidal violence because it really could have gone either way. There wasn't as much damage to her neck and throat as he usually would see in a strangulation like this, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. There isn't hard evidence to back up what Brooke said happened, but there isn't evidence saying it couldn't have happened that way. Brooke testified that William pretty much took charge at that point. He cleaned up the bathroom. When the shower turned on that the neighbor heard, that was Brooke. She was cleaning herself up. Then Brooke got to cleaning the bathroom again, using a toothbrush to get into little crevices. She said she went over the bathroom at least five times with a disinfecting cleaner. And since the police found the place spotless, she apparently did a good job. Brooke also testified that she was trying not to freak out when the police came to search the apartment. The first two searches, Paisley Joe was sleeping under a blanket next to William, and Savannah's body was in that bathroom closet. The next day, William took the back off of his dresser and hid Savannah's body in there with the drawers put back in. So the dresser was pretty much hollow, but the drawer fronts made it look totally normal. So when the third search happened and they opened the bathroom closet, Savannah had already been moved. She was still in that apartment, though. Had one police officer pulled on one of those drawers, the entire thing would be over. It wasn't until August 21st, two days later, that Savannah was moved from the apartment. Brooke and William carried the dresser down to their Jeep. According to Brooke, William left with it. Brooke didn't know his plan, but later learned he dumped Savannah in the Red River. So now they have Savannah out of the apartment, but they still have the baby. And Brooke testified she was almost paranoid at this point about someone finding out. Obviously, she couldn't let anyone know she had the baby or that this was Savannah's baby. She said she locked and barricaded the doors. 
not wanting to really leave the apartment. Brooke insisted she wanted the baby, and the focus was not on killing Savannah. I find that of absolutely no comfort to anyone, so I don't know why she somehow thinks anyone wants to hear it. It doesn't make Savannah any less dead or Brooke's actions any less brutal. I think she's just trying to justify it to herself in some way, and it's falling flat. Brooke claimed that she was overwhelmed with what she did, couldn't believe she could do something so awful, and testified that she asked William on multiple occasions while they had Hazley if she should give the baby to the family, and William told her no. Brooke then testified about William having fantasies around drugging and raping women, claiming that he would have to kill them just to avoid leaving witnesses. She said that he was often drunk when he made these comments, so she didn't take them seriously, except that choking with a rope was part of their sex play, and so she wondered how far his fantasies went. Another witness for the prosecution was Tanith Cloud, who was an ex of Williams. When William found out that Brooke was pregnant, Tanith asked him how in the world did that happen because she knew Brooke had a tubal. She said that anytime she brought it up with William over the next few months, she'd ask about the pregnancy, that sort of thing. He would not answer. He'd change the subject. She did characterize William as someone who had a big heart, but she also admitted he was racist. And I think the phrase she used was something like slightly racist. But racism isn't something I really put on a scale where there is an option for slightly. She said he would make disparaging remarks about indigenous people, which again, that's not very slightly to me. That's pretty solidly racist. You don't have to burn crosses on people's yards to be solidly racist. And this did make me wonder if this is part of why he had no problem jumping in and helping Brooke after the murder. Even if Savannah was already dead when he arrived home, he took over the cleanup and the cover-up, not really having an issue with moving around Savannah's body as needed, stuffing her in a closet, shoving her in a dresser, throwing her off a bridge. When a person sees another human being as beneath them, it's easier to do unspeakable things. Racial superiority has justified so many atrocities. So when you wonder if Savannah being indigenous had anything to do with her murder or the cover-up, I'm going to go with a yes here, at least on William's side. I don't know Brooke's history and if she shared his views, but she at least tolerated them because she was still with him. She didn't wholeheartedly object to being with a racist. So racism was not a deal breaker for her. 
So I think we can ask ourselves, was it easier for her to take Savannah's baby rather than any other pregnant woman in Fargo's baby because she didn't see Savannah as an equal human being? I think that's an unexplored possibility here. But back to the girlfriend's testimony. She did characterize William as very controlling in their relationship, which was central to the prosecution's case. William had to be controlling of Brooke to be part of this conspiracy. But she also testified that when she visited him in jail, he said that everything he did in this case was out of love for Brooke and then out of fear that he didn't want to turn Brooke in for murder, but he denied to her that he had anything to do with the murder. When the state wrapped up their case, the defense asked the judge to just give a judgment of not guilty, saying that there was not enough evidence against William to proceed, to give the case to the jury. Judges are pretty hesitant to do this, even in obvious cases of innocence, and the judge here was no different. He decided to let it go to the jury, so the defense started their case, and they called a woman named Jennifer Robinson to the stand. She was a jailhouse informant who claimed Brooke confessed to the murder, and in her statement to Jennifer, Brooke said she strangled Savannah on her own and that her motive was because she thought the baby was William's since she found out Savannah and William were having an affair. Brooke says this was nonsense. Jennifer made it up and had multiple false information charges against her in the past, and she was untrustworthy. And I recommend you looking up Valley News Live's coverage of this day in trial on YouTube because you see snippets of Jennifer on the stand. And I'm going to say that if I was on that jury, I would not have believed her. She does not come across as credible. And as much as you might be side-eyeing some of Brooke's story, this story that Savannah and William were having an affair is complete BS. They barely knew each other, except in passing. All of the evidence from the internet searches to the pregnancy journal to the birth kit lists that all points to the motive being that Brooke wanted the baby. So Jennifer, largely out of the way here, the main witness for the defense was William himself, and his story was very similar to Brooks, except on a few key points. So one point is he testified that he actually believed Brooke was pregnant the whole time. When he got home from work that day and heard the baby noises, he thought she must have given birth to their baby. So he couldn't have been putting pressure on her to produce a random baby when he thought she was pregnant all along. The second thing he said is different is that he said Savannah was absolutely already dead when he got home. He walked into the bathroom and saw Savannah laying there. He asked who she was because he couldn't even process what he was seeing. But when his brain did catch up to this horrific scene, he asked Brooke if she was even pregnant, and according to him, Brooke grabbed her stomach and said, I think so. 
At that point, he started helping cover up for Brooke because he loved her. He never put a rope around Savannah's neck. And the third major difference is that he said Brooke was with him when he dumped Savannah's body in the river. Pretty much none of the cover-up was done by him alone. Brooke was always with him. So this is the case the jury had. There was no DNA on the rope. If Savannah was strangled with it, which she most likely was at some point, the person handling the rope likely would have left a decent amount of skin cells behind. That could have pointed to Brooke with the theory that she used the rope to strangle Savannah so she could take the baby, or it could have pointed to William backing up Brooke's story. But because of the water, we didn't have this. The medical examiner doesn't really help here because he couldn't even say if Savannah died from strangulation at all. If she died from blood loss, it's reasonable to believe she was dead by the time William got home. Brooke admitted that she interpreted William's words as suggesting that she kill Savannah for the baby. She did not say he actually told her to do it. And she did not discuss this plan with him. So this is a woman who we are supposed to believe was delusional enough to think she was pregnant when she wasn't, but that she was reliable and aware enough to interpret subtly expressed demands by William. So is she delusional or is she rational and picking up on these subtleties? Maybe what she thought William was saying was actually another delusion. There was simply too much reasonable doubt here. The jury found William not guilty on the conspiracy to commit murder charge, not necessarily because they believed he didn't do it. They just didn't believe there was enough proof to say he did. So now William is not facing the penalty for this conspiracy to commit murder charge, which, as we know, is a life without parole sentence. But he was waiting to be sentenced on the two charges he did plead guilty on. So on October 29, 2018, the state held a hearing. They wanted to determine if there was evidence that William was a dangerous special offender. If he was deemed to be a dangerous special offender, he would receive a much stiffer sentence on those charges he pleaded guilty to. As a non-dangerous offender, the maximum sentence he could have gotten combined for those two charges was 21 years. With this enhancement, he could get a life sentence. And that's what happened. He was labeled a dangerous offender and given life with the possibility of parole. What made him a dangerous offender was that he already had a conviction for a violent crime against a child, meaning his 2012 conviction for the abuse of his own son. This, in the state's mind, showed a pattern. However, William appealed his sentence, and he won. On August 23, 2019, which is pretty much, what, a week before you're listening to this, the Supreme Court of North Dakota ruled that the abuse case with his son and the kidnapping case with Hazley Joe are not remotely similar, and this does not meet the burden 
to label him a dangerous offender. He needs to be resentenced without this enhancement, and he's eligible for that maximum sentence of 21 years on the two counts. His resentencing should really happen pretty much any day now. So last week, I promised we would talk a little bit about how the U.S. responded to this high-profile murder of an indigenous woman and how Canada responded to their high-profile murders of indigenous women. If we remember, Canada held hearings. They did an entire review of how the province helped or didn't help Tina Fontaine as she was growing up in care, and they released a number of public reports. In the U.S., North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp did introduce Savannah's Act into Congress on October 5th, 2017. It's also called the MMIW Act, though the long name of it is, quote, to update the online data entry format for federal databases relevant to cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. So just a reminder when I read this next bit, Indigenous groups within the government are still referred to collectively as Indians. And again, this is from the congressional website, not my language. Quote, this bill requires the Department of Justice to update the online data entry format for federal databases relevant to cases of missing and murdered Indians to include a new data field for users to input the victim's tribal enrollment information or affiliation. Pretty simple. Just add a field on a spreadsheet. And it was initially just about this database. But as the proposed bill developed, it expanded to standardize protocols in respect to missing and murdered Indigenous people. It was also meant to provide training and assistance in implementing these protocols. So basically, the federal government, who is legally bound to protect indigenous communities, is given a bill that is saying, here are some ways we can help do that thing we are required to do. So this is a great thing, right? So for those not from the U.S. or didn't pass civics class or never watched Schoolhouse Rock, for something to be made a bill in U.S. Congress, it has to pass both houses of Congress. The act was introduced in the Senate and passed unanimously on December 7, 2018. It then went to the House of Representatives, where it was expected to pass just as easily. Enter Virginia Representative Bob Goodlatte. He chaired the House Judiciary Committee and said he had issues with the bill, so it was never presented to the full House. It expired at the end of the session when no action was taken. This one man literally killed this bill without having to give a reason why, other than he had issues with it. He has been accused of doing this for political reasons. It was written by a Democrat, and he's a Republican. But I have to say, this bill had bipartisan support in the Senate. Every single voting senator voted for it. This shouldn't be a partisan issue unless someone is trying to make it one. 
Goodlatte retired and Heitkamp lost her reelection. So Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska reintroduced it in January 2019. So this year, in June, the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, again, government language there, held hearings. And according to the Senate website, there it sits in a freaking committee. This is what the U.S. does with this act. It plays partisan games and then lets it sit in a committee to die. According to GovTracker.com, Savannah's act has a predicted 2% chance of being enacted. And if you are a U.S. citizen and you do not have GovTracker.com bookmarked, highly recommend it. So while we may be talking about the Canadian missing and murdered Indigenous women and sitting here thinking about how awful the Canadian government has treated its citizens, which is true, we're only talking about it because the Canadian government is letting it be talked about. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., we're leaving it in a committee, which is where all good bills go to die. Canada is calling hearings while we are pretending it doesn't happen. It does happen here in the U.S. And if anyone has case suggestions for me along these lines from the U.S., please send them in because I'll talk about them. Bob Goodlatte cannot stop me. But I don't want to end this episode on a frustrated rant. Hazley Joe, she's doing great. Ashton said that she says mama when she sees photos of Savannah. He and Savannah's parents, who are very involved in her life, just like Savannah wanted, they make sure she knows who her mom is. I will link to pictures they shared with KVRR News so that you can see how happy and healthy and bright-eyed this little two-year-old is. Ashton has gone back to school to study business administration. He wants to make a good life for him and for Hazley and to be a good example to her. Kristen Thalen, who is the sister of Brandy Myers, I talked about her case. She's a long-term missing child. Well, Kristen said something to me that has really stuck with me. She talked about the aftermath of losing Brandy and then said that everyone ended up carving out a life for themselves in their grief, and they moved forward the best they can. And that's what it looks like Savannah's family has been trying to do. They've gotten grief counseling. They've left Fargo. They have done their best to mourn and also to heal as much as they can. And they have Hazley Joe, who's been described as spunky and having a lot of personality. And she's helping them find their way through a world without Savannah. Savannah. 